0: Amen. Thank you, ladies, choir, musicians. Thank you as you make your way down. We appreciate so much you leading us in worship. And what a blessing it is. We'll get our Bibles out. Open to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hey, Happy. How you doing, man? Page 310 on the Pew Bible in front of you. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Page 310. So this makes six weeks of... uh, this What If series where we are looking at, well, what if? What if we took God seriously about certain things that we face in our lives or certain things that He says? And how uh, can that be instructive to us to just afresh and anew? Look at these various things in, in the weeks to come. We're going to dive into some, uh, we got a few more weeks of this. We're going to have some very exciting Sunday mornings. Uh, it's been a blessing so far, and I'm looking forward to uh, the rest of the way out. But this morning we're going to look at what if it really is that hard? And every week when I tell you the title or you see the title up there, you'll, as we go through the message, you'll begin to see uh, where the title comes from. So if you're here this morning uh, and what's true of you is that you believe in God, you own a Bible, you live in the state Where you were born, you spend more money in restaurants than in grocery stores. At some point today, you will say a prayer. You won't floss your teeth. You take a shower that lasts about 10 minutes, but you don't sing while you're in there. (laughs) Praise the Lord. You spend about 95% of your day indoors about two and a half hours every day on the internet. You consume about 20 teaspoons of added sugar every day. You will not save a penny, but you will live 13 years on average longer than the average celebrity who is four times more likely to commit suicide. Who are you? You're just the average Joe in America. When I read that, I thought about all the ways that that doesn't seem like the average person in the United States to me, but I guess across this, the vastness of our nation, that is what 's representative of the average person. Well, this morning we 're going to look at a very average person in Scripture, and my hope is that it'll be an encouragement to you as we look at this woman 's life, and she 's so ordinary, and yet God uses her. In an extraordinary way, and I feel that uh, this text, in particular, as I really prayed that God would lead me to just the right text for this morning, uh, this is where He took us. And so I know that for some of you, God has something to say to you this morning. Before we read, I want you to understand the context of where we're reading. This comes in a, a time. The the book of First Samuel and First Chronicles arrive in a place and time in the in the history of Israel where. Things are in a downward spiral. We've come through the period of the judges where the Bible says at the end in Judges chapter 21 that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a time of chaos. It was a time of moral decay and uh, debauchery. And in the midst of all this that's going on, we're introduced to this ordinary woman. Her name is Hannah. It's just like, God, to use the painful circumstances in an ordinary nobody's life to do extraordinary things. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at this narrative this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And God, thank you for reminding us this morning that you are the God of the ordinary. And as as unordinary as you are, as amazing in every way as you are, Help us to see this morning that you delight to work in our ordinary lives, to do extraordinary things. And so we thank you in advance for what you'll do. We ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. In Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Now there's a certain man from Ramathim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim. So we're about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. Think of modern Palestine. And his name was Elkanah. He was the son of Jerahim. Now, if you're pregnant or considering having kids, you might want to take notes here because you're about to get some great name suggestions for your future children. This man, Elkanah, he was the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, the Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one wife was Hannah. The name of the other one, Penina. Peninnah had children, but Penina, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city early to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of, the, the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And there, there was the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make the offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, "'although the Lord had closed her womb. "'And her rival also provoked her severely "'and made her miserable "'because the Lord had closed her womb. "'So it was year by year "'when she went up to the house of the Lord "'that she provoked her. "'Therefore she wept and did not eat. "'Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, "'Hannah, why do you weep? "'Why do you not eat? "'And why is your heart grieved? "'Am I not better to you than ten sons?' And so we see here this introduction to this lady Hannah, and in this uh, these first eight verses we begin to see sort of the dynamic that's going on, some of the dysfunction in which she lives. And we we see this man Elkanah who has two wives. One wife has many kids. We're not sure how many Penina has, but she has multiple kids, both sons and daughters. And then Hannah, who has no kids. I want us first to see Hannah's pain. The, the word in verse 6, you notice it says that Penina would provoke her severely, and then the Bible says to make her miserable. That word miserable in the Scripture, it's not a word that would normally be used to describe an emotion as much as it is a word that describes a storm, like a roar, like when the, when the when, the, when nature becomes discontented or discombobulated and, and begins to roar, it was like Hannah lived in an inner storm within her. Because of her culture, she lived in a time when if you were a woman and you didn't have children, then you basically had no value. Barrenness in her time equaled hopelessness. And so here is a woman whose life was a roaring agony. And whenever I'm reading the Bible and I come across a passage like this, I I always begin to think to myself about how disturbing it is, bothersome it is to me, and I'm sure to you, when almost cruel when I'm confronted with people who refuse to acknowledge that life is difficult. There, that want to paint everything with, uh, with rosy colors and make everything okay. And the fact of the matter is is that it takes such denial to go there. We all realize that we live in a world where there's a lot of things that happen that are unexplainable. I mean, good people get cancer. Uh, terrible things seem to happen randomly around us every day. Life isn't fair in a thousand different ways. It's often sad and people we ought to be able to trust oftentimes betray us and so life hurts and sometimes it's even hard to get through the day and yet there's this sense where uh, even people who know that life isn't that way, we want to try to convince ourselves of that way, you know. I think about it when I think about the old Isaac Watts hymn that I've sang a million times where he says at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light where the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day. I think to myself, Isaac, is that really right? You get saved and then you're happy all the day. Do you think the Christians in Syria right now are singing that hymn? You think the Christians in Iraq are singing that hymn? More believers were beheaded this week? I don't think they're happy all the day. I think they're saved, and their life is full of joy, but I don't think that they're happy. All the day. The Bible paints a real picture, a real picture of life, life that can be difficult. The way the Bible instructs us in dealing with difficulty is by giving us case studies, especially in the Old Testament, case studies to look at, to examine, to look at people's lives, to get to know them, to get inside of of their circumstances and situations. Not so that we can look at someone else's life and determine what God's going to do in ours. That's not the way to look at this text. No, the God who never makes one fingerprint the same or one snowflake the same, the God of unlimited creativity, He will work His marvelous, creative, and unique way in our situation. But what we do is we look into these passages of Scripture and we learn the character and the nature of our Heavenly Father. We're able to see the, his tendencies and what matters to him and how he works in people's lives will help us to discern how he's working in our life. So you notice in verse 3 that this man, Elkanah, the husband, he, he went up to the city for yearly worship. Hannah was married to a good man. First Chronicles tells us that he was a Levite. He was born into the priestly tribe. He, he took his position in life very seriously every year he would take his family up to worship at silo and silo is where the temple was before it was relocated in jerusalem and so every year they would make it up there for the feast and they would celebrate there and honor god and evidently elkanah had been prosperous and the assumption is that hannah was his first wife and once she couldn't bear children he sought out another wife because he a man in this time needed to have children I think it's always worth mentioning that whenever we come across a text in the Bible where there's polygamy, there's so much confusion about this. People always ask me this question when I'm talking to them. people who who don't know God and are confused about God or maybe been exposed to God in some glancing way. And so they'll say things to me like, well, preacher, I mean, there's polygamy in the Bible. So, I mean, why don't you believe in polygamy? And I say, well, there's a lot of things in the Bible Uh, But that doesn't mean the Bible promotes those things. Uh, Just because they're there, why don't you and me sit down and read through the Bible? And here's what we're going to find out. Everywhere you see polygamy, you see disaster. Everywhere. It was practiced, but it's not God's preference. Clearly, God's preference, his design for marriage is one man and one woman. You see, the Bible is a record of events. Just because something in Scripture is recorded or reported doesn't mean it's recommended. Amen? So as you're talking to people who do not know God and do not understand the God of the Bible, just explain to them that though things are, it's just the Bible telling us what's going on. And if you read the story, you find here is yet another example of a man who has two wives and is in utter dysfunction. He clearly loves one woman way more than the other which is the same case you'll find in anyone who's ever been involved in polygamy. It's always a disaster. As if any man doesn't know he can't please two women, we can't please one. (laughs) Duh. So we meet Hannah. I'll pay for that later. The name Hannah. Some of you in here this morning are named Hannah. You should know that your name means grace. To be named Hannah is to be named Grace. And she was, she was loved by her husband. and Her husband deeply loved her. But she was facing circumstances that were beyond her control. And this other woman, Penina, was was just killing her, rubbing this in her face, no doubt because Penina was angry and bitter because of the way that Elkanah favored Hannah, which simply made it worse for Penina, which made it worse for Hannah. So Elkanah, unbeknownst to him or without realizing what he was doing, was probably the main source of all the problem. But in, in the midst of it all, we see this picture of the real issue, the real pain of infertility no doubt one of the greatest pains in life that we can know. And God's given me the privilege to walk through infertility with so many of you and some of you even right now. And you notice how often it comes up in the Scripture because God wants you to know that He understands and that it's real. And So if it's hard today in some circumstance in your life, God knows it. But understand that it was even more Difficult in biblical times to face this. There was no technology, there was no uh, options, and not only that, but the scorn and the stigma of a woman without children was uh, far greater than anything we can imagine in our culture today. The totality of a woman's value was wrapped up in her ability to bear children. And beyond that, the world around her, when they looked at a woman that didn't have children, they saw her barrenness as the judgment of God. I remember when I was in India, uh, there's so much confusion in India with their uh, plurality of gods, and they worship all sorts of crazy things, and they're so wrapped up in this issue of judgment that every time something bad happens to somebody, it was because in a previous life they had done something that Uh, God was punishing them for their ancestors have been unfaithful, and therefore that's why this was this calamity was upon them in this moment. And uh, it's just so sad to see the bondage that that leads to. And I want you to know that when you're reading a text and you see somebody in a place or position of pain, you can't confuse the sovereignty of God with the judgment of God. Notice what the Bible says in verse 5 but Hannah. He would give a double portion to, for he loved Hannah, and although the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival had provoked her severely to make her miserable. The Lord had done that. It was was in his sovereign plan. Hannah is in a dangerous place. This very real danger that many of us can face in our lives when we face difficulty, men, women, all of us. The danger is making something good preeminent. She was in danger of allowing having a child to consume her and to become her idol. It's a danger that's very real in this room right now. There may be things that you want in life. There may be things that you desire for God to do in your life. And they may be good things. And you may even find yourself saying to God, God, I know that that it's good for me to desire to be married. That it's good for me to desire to have children. That it's, it's good for me to to want to be happier or to be able to serve you greater if you would do these things in my life. And you must be careful that those things don't become an idol. You see, Penina had her husband's children, but Hannah had her husband's heart. The Bible says in verse 8 that Elkanah would, he said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? There's an instruction there for us, man, that we're always trying to fix things, aren't we? Every woman that hears that that verse knows what she's saying in her heart right now. is, Shut up, Elkanah. Just shut up. (laughs) Stop trying to fix it. He was well-intentioned. He was trying to be encouraging, but she's weeping uncontrollably, the Bible says. So she's a woman in great pain. But secondly, I want you to see not just Hannah's pain, but I want you to see Hannah's prayer. See, something happens in verse 9. There's a turning point in verse 9 where the Scripture says that Hannah arose. Well, well, you, you couldn't go somewhere In other words, they're sitting there and and he served her a double portion. And the scripture says she arose after they had finished eating and she went to, in Shiloh. And now Eli the priest was sitting by the seat of the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. That word arose, it means that she took a stand, that something changed inside of her, that she she, uh, came to a, a, a crossroads in her life. And this time her... Her pain's not going to drive her to isolation. It's not going to drive her to keep it to herself or to bottle it up, but it's going to drive her to God's presence. So she goes into the tabernacle where Eli the priest is. Now, she's, she doesn't feel any differently than she's been feeling. It's not like there's this uh, some aha moment in her life. She's just struggling and has been, but slowly over time, our struggles begin to, they teach us things. They they instruct us and enable us to respond. And so she allows her pain to move her into the tabernacle. See, the central issue with our pain is will it come between us and God or will it drive us closer to God? That's... That's what the Bible means when it says she arose. That's what you need to let sink deeply into your heart this morning. Is that how will your pain, it's not a question of do you have pain or will you have pain. Listen, the question is, is it going to drive a wedge between you and God or is it going to drive you closer to God? Notice, I want you to notice what's missing from this story. Hannah doesn't place fault with God. Look at verse 10. She was in bitterness of soul, and so she prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on my affliction, the affliction of your maidservant, and you'll remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall come upon his head. Notice she's not blaming God for for, uh, her circumstances. She's simply going to God and expressing the desire of her heart. She's saying, don't forget me, Lord. Turn to me, Lord. Remember me. Turn your countenance towards me. As I was thinking about this this week and studying this passage, it it was as if she sensed the danger that she could drift into idolatry and get consumed with the fact that she lacked children. And so in her declaration to God, she's saying, God, I want a son, but what I really want is I want your purpose for me. I want to know what you want for me in the midst of the questions I don't have answers for and the pain that I can't seem to resolve. What is it that you want for me? What is the purpose in all this? Now, if she were to have a son, her son would be a Levite because her husband's a Levite. And so when she says that no razor will be upon his head, she's talking about a Nazarite vow. So it would be a voluntary vow for this Nazarite son that she would potentially have, but who would serve God in in an even more special way. And it happened, verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. The priest and Hannah spoke in her heart; only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. And therefore, Eli said to thought that she was drunk. And so Eli said to her, "How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you." Now, all I'm saying about this is that what does it tell you about the condition of a nation when the priest? sees a lady earnestly praying and he thinks that she's drunk. It tells me that Eli has not seen someone pray in this way in quite a long time. And in the depravity of the nation, he's so baffled by what he's seeing that he's probably been running drunk people out of the tabernacle all the time. And so he just assumes she's just like everyone else. In verse 15, Hannah says, no, no, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman or out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. You see, despite the fact that her husband had tried everything to make her quit crying, despite the fact that every day she's tormented by this other woman, despite the fact that now the priest thinks that she's drunk. She's unmoved. She perseveres. You know, sometimes the people around you are not going to understand what you're going through. They're going to they're question you. They might even sometimes provoke you. They, they're going to misjudge you. There's something about deep, profound pain that that makes the people around us oftentimes uncomfortable because they don't know what to do. They don't know how to fix it. They don't know how to respond. And so they unknowingly most of the time seem to make things worse. But she, I would say to you this morning, persevere. Persevere. Don't get caught in the trap of what people think. You know what's going on. Or maybe you don't know what's going on. But you understand At least that you hurt. And I would say this text is saying to you and me to press into God in that moment. Verse 17 Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way, and then she ate, and her face was no longer sad. You see that phrase, her face was no longer sad. That's there to protect you. It's to protect you from making a huge mistake in the way that you might understand this narrative. Her face was no longer sad. It's there to protect you from thinking that she bargained with God and that you might read a text like this and go home and think that if you make a deal with God that you're going to do something for God, that God might do something for you. But you'd be wrong because the The way that we know that she wasn't bargaining with God is because she's no longer sad and yet she doesn't have a what? A child. You see that? God has not answered her prayer, but she's no longer sad. What this text is telling you is that what she has done is given this over to God. She has relinquished this to God. She has made her petition known to God, but she is content with whatever God might do with regards to how he might answer. She's resting no longer on her pain, but on the Lord. Her pain is still there, but it's not her focus. You see, the pain didn't go away. It's just that it's no longer the the focal point, and so she's able to no longer be sad and go back and, and eat Maybe here's what she would say. She would say after she prayed, I used to glorify God so that I could get a son. But now, the son has become a means to glorify God. If he gives me a son, it would be my means to glorify God. But I'm not going to use it as a bargaining tool with God. You see... Maybe the question we should ask this morning is, well, how do we get a heart for God like Hannah has? How does a person really get a heart for God? I would say that we, we won't have a heart for God until we experience the heart that God has for us. See, Hannah hasn't received the answer to her prayer what Hannah has received is the heart that God has for her she went to a God and poured her heart out to a God that she she came to a place of understanding that he loved her maybe she looked around and 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 looked at all the things in her life that weren't a disaster that weren't wrong maybe she found comfort and solace in The fact that she does have a a husband, that she does have some provision, that she does have a family, that there are things in her life that everything is not bad, that there are, there's always something to look at that you can find good in. You see, so many times we want a heart for God, but that just doesn't happen until we experience the heart that God has for us. So Hannah's pain, Hannah's prayer, and then finally Hannah's purpose. Verse 19, So they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to the house of Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. And when she had weaned him, she, verse 24, she took him, up with her with three bulls and an ephod, of flour and a skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. The child was young. Verse 25 They slaughtered the bulls and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my, my petition which I have asked him. Therefore I also have Lent him to the Lord as long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. You know, a few weeks ago we had child dedication and I'm so grateful that I'm not an Old Testament pastor and nobody brought a bull, slaughtered it and said, here you go, it's your kid, pastor. Pastor. Good luck with that. So all this time, she's longed for this child. This child who would validate her, who would take the stigma off of her, who would right the wrongs that maybe have been perpetrated against her, that would silence her enemies, her critics, that would... Solve all of her problems. She turns her heart to the Lord in recognition of the heart that the Lord has for her and prays this amazing prayer. And God grants her a child. And she gives the child back to the Lord just as she said she would. To which I just want you to consider this morning does that really solve her problems? Or does that just create a whole new set of problems? What do you think Panina started doing after this? Do you think Panina just uh, stopped harassing her because she had no children? Or do you think Panina started harassing her because you're so foolish that you finally had one and then you gave him away? And then everywhere she went, people would say, oh, there's the lady who never could have a child and finally had a child and then gave it to the Lord. Do you think all the other ladies that looked upon her as they sort of felt convicted in their own heart because of what she had done? What do people do when they feel convicted in their heart because they perceive that someone around them is doing something that's extra spiritual? Well, they're going to mock them. They're going to make fun of them. In other words, I would say to you that it probably made the situation just as bad or worse, but just in a new way that her problems weren't solved. She just created a new set of problems. But this is life. Is this not life? Are you telling me this morning that the more faithful you are to God, the the greater that God works in your life, the easier things get? What world are you living in? Because it's not my world. My world is a world where the more you walk with God, the more you speak for God, the more you stand up for God, the more you're mocked, the more you're persecuted, the more you suffer. I think she's a perfect illustration of the reality of the life in which we live and I, for the life of me, cannot understand how people do not see the Bible as such a clear and and classic uh, example of Life that we live every day, though it 's thousands of years old, it is so pertinent to exactly where we live right now. Sometimes the most painful places in our lives become the most productive place for the Lord that God loves to work in our lives and he works in the painful places in our lives he loves to work there he does his best and deepest and longest lasting shaping and molding in the pain this is not a a formula as some shallow people might try to lead you to believe this is not a formula to to get what you want from God it's the furthest thing from that it's a beautiful picture of not how to escape your pain Not how to get God to do what you want God to do. It's a picture into the life of a God follower. Of an ordinary person who had everyday, ordinary, great pain. I feel like I sit in the living room of a lot of Hannah's. I feel like I visit a lot of Hannah's in the hospital. I feel like I, I have a lot of Hannah's in my office. I feel like there's so many people that remind me of this great lady in their hurting, and their pain. It's a picture of this ordinary lady who's a God follower. And it's a picture of the God that she follows. It shows us that when God's glory becomes the central desire of our heart, things begin to happen. But we have to move past God's not saying that our pain's not real. He's not saying that it's it's, uh, just a figment of our imagination or that we ought to just deny it away and make it not hurt. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying, just come to me and seek me first. Put my glory above all other things and you'll see me begin to work. It may be in the way that you... Desire, it may not be, but whatever way, it's going to be the best way because that's the God that we serve. It tells me about a lady that's not validated by her children or her husband or the cultural norms, but by God. I look around here this morning and I see faces of people. You're not validated by what the world expects of you. You don't find your existence and your, the reality and the essence of who you are based on what other people's opinion is. But you're God seekers and it's apparent in the way that you live your life and it's so encouraging. It's so encouraging. And sometimes the, the one thing that I can always be grateful for maybe it's one of the only things i can be grateful for is that we don't all plunge into the valley at the same time that it's a rotation isn't it some are down and some are up and you see that's our duty with one another is that we just rotate and if you're down right now and we're able to come alongside you and love you. It won't be long before the table's turned and we're down and you're coming beside us. See, we're not going to have a heart for God until we experience the heart that God has for us. God loves you this morning, ordinary person. He loves you, lady, man, student, young person. Yes, he He gave grace a son. But she gave him back to the Lord. You know what the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 15? That God is so frustrated with the wayward people in the time of the prophet Jeremiah's ministry. In chapter 15... God equates Samuel with Moses. He says, even if Moses or Samuel came, I wouldn't relent. Moses or Samuel? Forevermore, we... We have sealed in Scripture who this little boy became and all that this little boy accomplished. But for the overwhelming majority of his life, mom wasn't there because she had lent him to the Lord. She'd given the Lord that which was most precious to her, that which she had longed for the longest. In 1 Samuel chapter 2. You'll notice there's a song. That she sings in the first. Verses of chapter 2. And her heart rejoices in the Lord. She says. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My smi- I smile at my enemies. You see. What enemies? You You shouldn't have any enemies. You have a. A child now, no, you have new enemies. Just like you and just like me. Because I rejoice in your salvation. She says, no one is holy like the Lord. There is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Does that sound familiar to you? You know, in the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, there's another young lady who sings a song after giving birth to a son. It's Mary's song. And Mary sings Hannah's song. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 26, that Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. And in Luke chapter 2 verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. That Hannah was singing in delight about the salvation of a God who would one day send a king who would take away all the sins of the people. She couldn't imagine when she sang that how it would be or what it would look like. But little did she know, a thousand years later, another little ordinary lady would become pregnant in an even more astonishing way. And she would as well be condemned and ridiculed by the culture around her as she was unwed and yet pregnant. And she would, like Hannah, face ridicule and strife and struggle. And she would, like Hannah, ask many of the same questions. God, why me? Why are you doing this to me? Why is this happening? Couldn't you have smoothed out the, the bumps in the road, done this a different way where it was easier or smoother or better? God says, oh Mary, the one whom you carry, He's the Savior of the world. He comes through the ordinary in your pain, in your hurt. So what does that mean for us this morning? Well, here's what it means. It means that here we are, a room of ordinary people. So what does it mean about all the questions you don't have answers to, all the struggles that you have All the ways in which maybe the pain or maybe the, the confusion or the severity, the longevity, or whatever the case may be, maybe it has begun the process of pushing you further from God. And this morning you realize that what you need to do is you need to run to him. You need to run to him. That he is a God who works in the ordinary broken heart of you and me. That he calls us unto himself. That he says, just come to me and seek me first. It's not a a bargaining tool to get what you want. It's simply an opportunity to have a heart for God to realize how much He truly loves you and that there's nothing that He won't do to accomplish His plan and purpose in your life. And maybe this morning's the morning for you and for me to stop fighting against what God's trying to do and to relinquish and allow Him to work His perfect work. And for some of you, the realization is is that your enemies aren't going to go away So don't look for that. In fact, there may be new enemies that come your way. But you just walk with God and be faithful. And don't ever underestimate His power and His authority to swoop into a disastrous situation and to give you joy. See, only He can do that. There's not a life in this room this morning that He can't come into and bring joy into your life. And so really the question is, do we trust him? You know, what if life really is that hard? Are we going to trust God? Are we going to pursue him? Are we going to walk to him and trust that he'll work things out? And that if all we know is that we're his, we know enough. Maybe it's another Mother's Day. And every year on this Sunday, you come to church because that's what mom wants you to do. Did you ever stop to consider of all the things mom could want you to do, what does it say about mom? that what she wants is for you to come to church. In fact, she doesn't just want you to be in church today. She wants you to be in church because she knows that if you're in church, there's a chance that God might speak to your heart, that his word might penetrate your heart, and that this might be the day, this might be the day that you trust God fully. That's why she wants you to be in church. So let's consider where we are this morning and let's consider the God that's before us. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a moment of invitation and I'm going to be here and the other pastors are going to be here and if there's a decision that you need to make, we would invite you to come. Just come down and grab us by the hand and tell us what that is and if there's something we can pray for you about, that's what we want to do is pray for you. There's an opportunity for you to come and kneel at the altar and, and pray for the children that will be cared for and, and blessed and encouraged through these gifts. But when you pray for them, I want you to think about them holding these stuffed animals or keeping themselves warm in these little blankets or taking care of themselves with these items. They're somebody kids, somebody's children. I don't know whose. But I know God loves him. I know he created him in his image. I know God loves you this morning. He created you in his image. And he's inviting you to come to him. Come to him. Come to him and seek his glory. And watch what he can do in the disaster of your life. Watch what he can do. Let's stand and bow our heads.